0: Welcome to Flashpoint, the Fire Inside podcast, featuring leadership and team-building principles designed to ignite your inner fire and help you reach your full potential. On our program, you will learn from professional athletes, military and business experts, inspirational figures, leaders in the fire service, and other top achievers who have reached the pinnacle of success in their chosen fields. And now
1: your host, international speaker and best-selling author,
0: Frank Viscuso. Let's get right to it. I'm here with Kurt Isaacson, uh, my friend and uh, one of the most passionate people I've ever met in my life about the fire service, which is a beautiful thing. And that's why I'm glad to have you on. Kurt, welcome to Flashpoint.
1: Awesome. Thanks, Chief, for having me on Flashpoint. Looking forward to it. Excited, honored, just, you know, after. You know, you're having somebody like Carly Loy on here. My family's huge in the soccer and that sort of thing. So it's not like you're just, you know, doing fire stuff. And that, you know, that intrigues me to be, have the opportunity to be on here, just looking at some of the other people that
0: you've already had on. Well, you know, it's interesting you say that. When, when I started this, here's kind of the, the, um, the way that it all came about. For years, when I've been writing books, what I do is I would take this little tape recorder. I'd interview people and it started with Common Valor. I'd interview firefighters, they'd tell me their story, and I'd write their story and I'd write the book. And then I would think, I wish people could listen to people tell me these stories, because it's it's I don't know if I do them justice. I think I may, but I just don't know. And then as I as I'm moving on, I said, I tell you what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna for my next book when I interview people, I'm just gonna make all these interviews available. And then it just turned into this the the podcast format had appeared as you know and I thought you know what I'm going to turn it into a podcast let people hear the interviews there's no rhyme or reason to who I bring in except for this I want people who have reached the 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 pinnacle of success in their chosen field so Carly Lloyd came on for that reason I just had Rudy Rudiger on I mean they made a movie about his 27 seconds and one tackle I wanted to know how he got the movie made that was more of why I wanted him on Uh, We have Olympians on there, we have military experts on there, and my favorite leaders in the fire service like yourself, so thank you again for coming on. Awesome, no, thank you. So I want to start, Kirk, by just talking about your journey in the fire service. There's a lot of people that want to become firefighters. I'm the son of a firefighter, the brother of a firefighter. I know you are the son of a firefighter, too. Maybe you could talk about your background and how you came into the fire service.
1: Um, well, you know, growing up in Midway, uh, my dad joined um, when he was stationed at Hurlburt Air Force Base, home of Air Force Special Operations Command, in 1971, and so you know, I grew up, you know, as a as a kid in the 70s, and you know, the fire station was literally just like we could just drive through the neighborhood to get to the to the firehouse, which is you know, the, the station now down the street that I'm fortunate enough it's, you know, ALS four person staff all the time, you know, company that's first due to my house. In fact, they just responded here day before yesterday for uh, a man that was drowning out in front of um, our dock. And, you know, Jessica was out there. So, you know, growing up, you know, where my dad was was a firefighter and, and, and actually became the chief in 1977, that's what we did. And back then it was all volunteer primarily military people were the officers and the leaders. So even though it was volunteer, I grew up as a as a kid that I didn't know the difference between volunteer and paid. I just saw older men that were, you know, military. My dad being ex-military, his assistant chief had retired with nearly 40 years of the city of Detroit, Chief King Gabriel. So growing up for me, I, I you know, some people have had bad experiences. I had nothing but great experiences of, of, of men that were bigger than life. That, that were family oriented. And, you know, I, I didn't realize how many calls we did or didn't go on. I just know that I went on calls with my dad in 1971, you know, Volvo station wagon, it had a fire radio mounted in it and a Plectron and we went to the grocery store, literally. I mean, it was like a little briefcase. It, it went in the grocery basket, Um, you know, for anybody that knows what a Plectron is. It's nothing like a pager. And so that was my thing. That I, I just knew that, that, you know, we went and, um, we had spaghetti dinners on Sunday, fish fries, you know, catching mullet and uh, out in the Pensacola Bay on Saturdays. And I actually went to, you know, two two memorable calls happened in the '70s for me. You know, today, you know, people would arrest a father for taking a kid my age, you know, to work in two-story house fire. And I saw, I've told this story before. I saw a middle-aged man pulled out of a two-story house fire, and next thing you know, I saw him put him into a black bag and they zipped the bag up and. On the way home, my dad had to explain to me what happened. I was like, Dad, why would they put that man in that bag? Um, and another wreck where we pulled up and there was, you know, people all over the street, Highway 98. We used to have bumper stickers that said, pray for me. I live on Highway 98. And, you know, you've been here, Chief. You know, the traffic for for not being, you know, in Atlanta or New York City, our traffic's still pretty intense and seeing a, you know, what I remember as a family to me, it might've been two people. My brain tells me it was like five people, but you know, white sheets over the bodies. And so my first experience was a little kid in the seventies, seeing people laid out in the middle of highway 98 with sheets on top of them. And, you know, somebody put in a body bag and, you know, at the time, I don't, you know, I don't realize it was impactful on me, but it was. And then, you know, just, you know, growing up, going to fires with my dad, uh, back in a time when I was allowed to do things you wouldn't be allowed to do today I mean I was running around at wildfires in the woods and you know at house fires I'd stand by the car till they put it out and I'd help pick up hose and I actually got my first set of um bunker gear which was pull-up boots a black coat which I call the back draft coat and a metro helmet on May 21st 1988 my parents got off cheap that year it was free for them they they didn't have to spend any money on gifts they just the fire department issued me a set of bunker boots a coat and a helmet you know they didn't have hoods then and I was excited about it so um that's kind of my you know upbringing you know people when I talk and don't know me I mean it when I say I really don't know anything other than the fire department um it's it's what we did um in the even in the 70s when I was a you know a little kid and definitely into the 80s um the closest ambulance post station they operated out of a single watt mobile home that The on-duty ambulance crew would come to our house for Christmas to eat. My dad would have them to the house. My dad would have officers meetings as a chief. His officers meeting as a leader, you know, leadership, step up and lead. My dad would bring his officers to our house, and my mom would have coffee and tea um, and desserts for them, and they would sit at our kitchen table, around the kitchen table, and my dad would do that instead of going to the firehouse. that was literally less than two miles down the street, just for a sense of, of ownership a sense of community a sense of of just you know bringing them into our house you know and I grew up in the church um you know some would say Southern Baptist I you know they didn't they didn't holler and hoot like some people think Southern Baptist did but you know grew up going to church on Sunday literally Wednesday night and you know vacation Bible school and all that so for me in the world of, of that that's just the sense of being that we were we you know of, of how things operate I didn't know anything but going to the firehouse or rushing to eat you know eat at the house to get up to the training because we did we definitely had training and you know that's the thing I can say that the drills were very structured um, there was a calendar even 40 years ago my dad had a training calendar of what we were going to train on each week of the year 52 weeks a year what was the monthly topic and that's when I laugh sometimes it you know, now in 2021, how a fire department couldn't have some type of training agenda, is just hard for me to comprehend.
0: Well, to me, it sounds like your father was just ahead of the curve with all of this, by bringing people into the house, making it feel like a family, uh, being that structured, having that training. And by the way, when you're telling these stories, I'm sitting there thinking you and I live the same life just in two different states. The only thing is I would imagine that our pasta dinner on Sunday was a little bit better here in New Jersey than it might be in Florida. But, was. but seriously, I mean, my, my dad being a firefighter really sounds very, very similar. And we live, um, you know, off of a, a busy street in Kearney, but we're very close to two spans at a New Jersey turnpike. Uh, one of my very first calls, uh, we had to put some, uh, you know, a family in body bags. You know, we arrived on scene and, and uh, a, a terrible car accident. It's pretty interesting, by the way, because that was very early in my career. I'm going back to probably 1992, and it wasn't until about 20, maybe 26 years later, that I was reliving that incident in my, in my mind, and it actually bothered me because there were kids involved. And it actually made me think a little bit about, hey, you know what? I, I'm not going to classify this as post-traumatic stress disorder. It didn't feel like that. But it weighed on me, and I think maybe because at this point now I'm a father of young kids that were about the same age as those kids, and maybe that played a factor in it. But uh, but yeah, we're all about community, and it sounds like you and, and your dad were too. Did he encourage you to become a firefighter, or did you just say, "This is what I want to do"? There's no other option.
1: Um, I I mean, he you know he did he I can say he did not he didn't discourage me. Um, you know, I, I think there was naturally the encouragement there because. I think, you know, if my dad were to do it over, obviously my grandfather was in World War II and my dad joined during the Korean conflict uh, growing up on the south side of Chicago, not far from Squad 5 or the 75th Street um, collapse that, you know, took some firefighters' lives not too many years ago. um, that If he could do it over, I think, you know, he possibly would have tested with the Chicago Fire Department back in the early, you know, 50s. And so just seeing how much he loved it, how much he was proud to be, you Know in the United States Air Force and served during Korea and Vietnam. And as I got older, I realized, you know, that how much he loved it. And I just for him to work all day. And uh, my dad was an aircraft mechanic, and then he was the manager of the automotive repair shop uh, at Sears and Fort Walton Beach. And before that, he had owned the five bay garage that he kind of built up for my grandfather. And I would see him, and he, you know, he worked all day hot, you know, carried the green thermos, the old school green heavy duty thermos to work and sometimes had two of them, you know, had a lunch in a true lunch box, like you see, you know, blue collar workers do. And he would get off of a long days of, of, of work and turning wrenches. Even as a manager, he would be out there turning wrenches and and doing stuff and, he, you know, provided very well for us. But it's like he was more energized when he got off after a 10 hour day than he was when he woke up at five uh-huh. o'clock in the morning. And I, I look back and, and I have thought about it. I didn't think about it then. It was just like, you know, I, I remember as a kid, you know, my mom sometimes getting frustrated because she's like, you've been gone all day, you've been working, you're exhausted and now you've got this burst of energy. And it's because we were going up to the firehouse to do a legitimate drill, you know, in our two and a half story drill tower. And I just, that's what I saw, that passion, that purpose, that love. Um, I, I definitely get the teaching aspect, the training, I get all that from my dad, and, and a minute ago, you talked about my dad being ahead of the curve, and and that that's credited to our United States military. That's credited to the Air Force, the leadership that this great country and our Department of Defense has provided for decade after decade is my dad didn't know any different. I mean, I, I remember as a young child, you know, I, I would squat down, and my dad asked me to hand him, you know, a a half-inch deep socket. I mean, when I was probably four years old, I knew what an open-end versus a closed, you know, wrench. And I would grab it, and I'll never forget the first time I asked my dad about a wrench, his Social Security number was, like, etched on his tools, and his name was on it. I said, what's with this, Dad? And he said, that's accountability. And I said, accountability? He said, yeah, we're not allowed to have any type of tool on a flight line that's not marked, so if that tool ends up causing a failure of an aircraft, they know who to track it back to. So, you know, at a young age, those were just little things that I didn't understand until I was older, things like that. And I still have my dad's tools and every one of my dad's tools, not once once he left the Air Force, but any tool that's etched with my dad's social security number on it um, um, is, is, was tools that he used on a flight line, you know, in the 50s, you know, um, you know, 60s into the 70s. And that's the first accountability that I was taught by my father just accountability of a, a wrench left on a flight line could cause a failure of a plane to crash. Um, and yeah.
0: so awesome. That's such an awesome lesson. You know, somebody recently sent me a picture. I wish I knew what department it was. I want to say it's FDNY. Uh, they sent me a picture of a, of a sink at a firehouse and written on the sink are the name of their two newest firefighters and the point is you are responsible to make sure the dishes are clean and this kitchen is taken care of because they're, they're teaching them the same thing, accountability. If you can't get it right here in the fire station, you're not going to get it right in the fire ground. And it starts in a soft, unhostile work environment. What a great lesson your dad taught you. It sounds like he taught you a lot of great lessons.
1: He did. And I can't say whether you're making me chuckle about the sink. I'm still trying to get the sink right at my own house. I get in trouble with Jessica for leaving my uh, spoon for stirring my creamer. And sugar. She is definitely not into one spoon being left in the sink. So um, I'm still working on that accountability at home.
0: Well, listen, I mean, I, I'm working on that with my kids before this podcast. I'm out in my backyard picking up the dog droppings thinking, wait, it looks like it wasn't picked up for a week. I told the kids, if you want a dog, you have to take care of the dog. So we're going to have a talk when they come home from school. But I'm just grateful they're in school now because with COVID, they've been doing remote learning for a year. And, uh, and I'll tell you what, man, that's been some of the, uh, you know what, here's the interesting thing about COVID. Just because I brought that up, I, I wanna finish this thought. For our family, personally, it was probably the best year we've ever had. Not even kidding, probably the absolute best year we've ever had because we have done so many things with my kids. I don't know if you even saw what I posted on on Facebook yesterday. We were making waves in our cul-de-sac a I did with the tarp. tarp. I saw it. That was beautiful. I loved it. With a tarp, right? So the kids are going down on a skateboard, and we're pulling one end of it, and, and they're and they're and they're catching tubes right on our street. And I'm thinking that's all like COVID-inspired, for lack of a better word, because we were just finding things to do at home in our neighborhood. And I'm bringing my kids out to the ball field and creating these amazing memories for them. And uh, and but I just got to get them to learn how to pick up after the dog. We'll get there we're still working on that too. <laughs> you are, I mean, I've mentioned this before, but passion is a word that comes to mind when I think of Kurt Isaacson. And I, and for me, I know that's, that's uh, something that's very important for me personally. I mean, I, I'm very passionate about my message. You're very passionate about your message. What motivates you? What keeps you going?
1: Um, I would say, you know, past failures, um, not only for myself, but past failures that I've Observe that we as a fire service, um, that, you know, we can fix. And, and I've shared this before. Um, I, I do I do struggle with having some anger inside. I try to take that anger and I try to focus it on, um, you know, having a purpose and a passion to drive other people to hopefully not experience what I've experienced um, with, you know, failure on the fire ground. Failure on the fire ground is, is a reality. We don't like to talk about it. We don't like to admit to it. Um, but we all have folders in our mind that are failures on a fire ground. And, you know, I've said this before and it was misinterpreted when I did a doc session is that some firefighters, um, PTSD, if you will, is self-induced from a failure to properly prepare for calls that, that they should know that they're going to have to respond to sometime in their career. And so I'm just trying to manage that, you know, and, and um, there'll be a time in the day that I'll, I'll share you know, my failures of, of going right when going left would have got somebody in two minutes and, you know, I'll never know if they survived or, you know, um, I've been very open about my failures of the 10 months, you know, that I didn't properly prepare Maurice Bartholomew before November 25th, 2000. Uh, so I, I think those are things that I just try to, as I get older, become more mature. Um, this year, my goal for 2021 is to become more emotionally intelligent um, to fine-tune my message to people that have closed me off for years, because I have people that don't want to hear me. They just look at me as a Southern Baptist preacher. He's ranting a raving. so, you know, the things that motivate me um, and drive my, uh, my passion or my purpose is, you know, to focus that to where I can reach more people so we can possibly save more lives. That's why, you know, I'm so big about this firefighter rescue survey and Brian Brush's stuff, because Awesome. That is a dream of mine that goes back to the 90s. Rush is well aware of it. He's known about it. I've shared it with him for years. Started firefighterrescues.com, which I just never got off the ground because I had too many irons in a fire. And I'm, I'm so excited. Some some men that are that are way more committed to that, you know, and their, their focus is on that, that bullseye, if you will, is that, and that's exciting because that's going to change lives. It's going to save lives. And, you know, I'm rambling on your question because I could talk about it for three hours, but. And that's fine. You know, the reality is, you know, for me, I guess, to sum it up, when somebody says, you know, ask me, why are you so passionate? Because I've experienced success, and more importantly, I've experienced significant failure on the fire ground, personally, professionally, as an organization, you know, 20-some civilian fire fatalities in a little over a year. I mean, more than Miami-Dade and Escambia County, will drive you to to have a message. I, you know, I tell people, you know, if you've not experienced, you know, death or haven't experienced being able to cut somebody out of a car, um, the summer in 1995, a younger fellow soccer player at Gulf Breeze High School, his uh, number seven was the number on his jersey. It's been retired since 1995. And my oldest son was number seven up until his freshman year, and he couldn't wear number seven because it was retired. I'm the one. I, I cut him out of a car. In the summer night, 1995, he was – the most sober kid in the car he was sitting in the back seat um, the drunkest was the driver and then the front right passenger and the right rear passenger you know were inebriated you know under the influence of alcohol and the the one that died was the most sober and i i'll never forget um, you know that summer in 1995 literally you know cutting out the passenger seat and it it wasn't a hydraulic hearse tool it wasn't a hydraulic TNT or Amherst tool. It was an air boss it was an air operated spreader air chisel um we didn't even have a reciprocating salt battery operated we just had the, i mean literally the hacksaw and we had some soapy water i mean this is 26 years ago and i to this day can hear life like the helicopter you know turning and they're not shutting it down well i've been in i grew up in a fire service when they don't turn it off that means seconds matter that means time is of essence You know, they turn a helicopter off, then, you know, that maybe, hey, it's just an air transport. And, but, you know, I still to this day look back and I've always wondered if I cut him out a little quicker, would he have lived? Because he lived for three days in a hospital, brain swelling. And, you know, that drove me to training extrication. I immediately enrolled. I got my dad to pay for me to go to what was called the Georgia Extrication School. the largest extrication school in the country back in its time in Georgia, Athens, Georgia, home of, you know, Georgia Bulldogs. Six hundred people, chief, at an at extrication school. I mean, that didn't even exist today anymore. Right, and you know, so those are things that drive my passion and purposes. You know, you know, people say, "Ah, oh, you didn't fail," but for me, you can't change what's in my mind. That night, I didn't cut him out quick enough to get him on a helicopter to get him there, and so I became, at the time, an expert of reading anything that was Ron Moore and Firehouse Magazine, going to you know extrication schools back in the nineties, you know, Nashville's USAR school and so, um, you know, my dad said at a very young age, you want to save lives, train others to save lives. That was the most powerful thing that my dad probably told me in my career was, you know, when I, when I told my dad I wanted to be a New York City firefighter, a Chicago firefighter, and that's a whole story in itself. But he said, you know, you can always make the most of it here. People in Northwest Florida need somebody to make them realize that they're just as important as the fire department as the FDNY or Chicago. And anybody listening to this, I want to tell you something, too, that's in the top most important things my dad ever told me when I was trying to decide in 1992 if I was going to test with FDNY or Chicago was. um, And my first paid job was the city of Mary Esther, a one station fire department, engine 47, runs with Destin, if anybody's familiar with Destin or Fallon Beach. My dad said, son, you can only ride one fire truck at a time, whether you work for a one station fire department We're a 209 station fire department. You can only ride one fire truck at a time operating out of one firehouse. What's most important is whatever firehouse that you end up getting lucky enough to be a part of, make it the best. Make it the best in a firehouse, make it the best on a rig and realize that the the people that you respond to are just as important as the people that I grew up with in the South Side of Chicago. So, you know, I'll leave it at that. But, you know, those are just some things, just failure and success. Um, You know, my dad telling me, you know, that, that that sometimes we don't have to go somewhere else to achieve our dreams and goals. You can build them and create them in your own backyard. And I sit here um, in, in my cottage that's been in my family for 50 years, um, you know, and, and a house to to the right on the Delta side I lived in, the house to the Bravo side I lived in, and a house across the street Jessica and I built five years ago. Um, and I've lived in all four of them, and there's literally four consecutive addresses. And just, you know, trying to, to, to build that is – you know, something that has purpose, has meaning. And i tell you, you know, so many times I, you know, I don't even like the word legacy. I'll be straight away. And, and I get it. I understand what it means, but I, I told somebody else the other day that if you're living to create a legacy, there will be no legacy. If you're living to change lives and you're living to have person and pa- purpose and passion. So when you're done, you're, you're proud of what you did. That's what matters, you know? And I think that's what my dad left with me was, you know, that, that when you're done, it's not about a legacy. It's about, did you pay it forward? And did you enjoy the ride and the journey? Um, and I wish I had it, but there was an old cutout newspaper article that hangs on my locker at the firehouse in Escambia County. And, you know, it, it talks about, you know, retirement's not a destination. It's a journey. And I, I, my mom, it was in some of her stuff after she passed away and I taped it on my locker to remind me not to rush getting to my retirement date not to rush to get to 65 to collect social security that i mean why are you rushing life to be over live it for
0: each and every day you know i love how you brought up legacy too i often say in my classes that uh you don't get to even determine your legacy because ultimately your legacy is what people say about you when you were here so it's how you're treating them it's it's the environment that you're setting are you do you have a culture of training And I also love what you just talked about when you talked about being or wanting to be more transparent with some of your past failures. Uh, I can tell you this, when I started teaching, I was reluctant to talk about my failures because here I am thinking, all right, now people are going to say, I've written books on leadership. They see me as a leadership leadership expert. And then I suddenly one day had this shift where I thought, wait a minute, in my books, I talk about my failures. I talk about mistakes I made. When I teach, I'm going to talk about them, too, because I'm not a leadership expert. I'm a leadership student. You know, I'm focused on wanting to get better. But my primary mission is to share with other people um, mistakes that I made as, as well as as successes that I've had so I can help them get there faster. You know, it's all about, about learning from other people's mistakes. We're great at doing this in a fire service. We're great at collecting information. We're great at disseminating information. Now we have this new study you're talking about that, that Brian Brush is putting together. Fantastic stuff. We're great at doing this, but people need to get the information. They need to share the information and they need to share the story that goes with it. Uh, a good friend of mine, and I won't say his name because it's his story and I'll let him say his name, when, you know. But, but I've heard him share this story live and you know him too. He comes down and teaches at your conference too, but he was telling a story one time where he shows up at a fire as a new young incident commander. It's a a several story building. I think it's maybe four or five stories. And fires coming out the front window. He's thinking, all right, this is a piece of cake. We got this thing knocked out. No problem. He thinks to himself, I should go do a 360, but I could see everything I need to see right here. So he stays right there. They go in, they knock the fire down. Uh, They call it, you know, we got the fire under control. At that point, he goes around the back of the building to do a 360 and there's a young girl laying on the ground and she's dead. And he said that he has lived his whole life from that moment forward, wondering if she would have been alive if he did a 360 when he arrived on scene because maybe she was still in the window, calling for help and didn't jump. And I've never forgot that. And I, although I'm not sharing his name again because it's his story, I'm sharing the story because somebody may take that story and arrive on a scene tomorrow and say, let me do a 360. No guarantee, yeah. 100%. Learn. So you have you have this great, obviously you have a great conference. I've been down there to teach, and thank you by the way for inviting me down there. But, but County Fire Tactics, I wanna talk about where it's worth the risk came from. The, the, the phrase itself, it's worth the risk. What does it mean? Where did it come from? Well, first and foremost, I, I gotta give you
1: what I, the standard thing that I prefer everybody to say if they, you know, if they choose to wear the wristband, and we have different colors for each conference. But if if I'm eating dinner and somebody asks me out in public, you know, what does it's worth the risk mean? My it's just standard. I look at them and I say it's worth the risk for me to risk my life to save your life. I voluntarily signed up for the American Fire Service, just like the military voluntarily signs up outside of you know the the draft, which we haven't had in decades. Um. To, to serve you, and I I feel it's an honor to to be a firefighter and be able to serve the public. Nobody forced me to do it, and it's really that simple. It's not a kamikaze mission, it, you know. It's 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 a calculated, educated thing. But there are risks, and and I think that once we take the oath, and and you know, this morning I was fortunate enough to hear our brother Mike Galliano, you know, talking about the badge, the patch, and the name tag, and all that stuff just resonates for me. It never gets old, and we need to understand that we signed up for it. And, and I'm actually in the cottage and there's just a sticker just randomly just sitting here. I didn't, and my oldest lives here, but um, it it is, it's worth the risk. And it's not meant, you know, for somebody to go into a fully involved mobile home where the roof's about to fall in. It's, you know, it's not about jumping off and doing something that's impossible. Uh, But, you know, if somebody's out in the Gulf of Mexico and it's, you know, six foot surf and the firefighters on Avar beach and Pensacola beach work on a beach and they have a jet ski and an extractor sled like they have in Hawaii. That's dangerous. That's just, if not more dangerous than going into a building fire, but they're expected to get in the Gulf of Mexico and go rescue the people that are paying 300 bucks a night to stay in a regular hotel room. I mean, it's, it's, you know, I'm, I'm getting worked up just answering that one question. I mean, <laughs> I really don't have much patience for people, that voluntarily whether they get compensated by pay or not um i really don't have much patience for people that are not willing to put in the time and commitment to be on duty i mean really it's worth the risk is only second to on duty when i first became a battalion chief 17 years ago in escambia county the first slogan that i gave to my first battalion was on duty and the first speech i went around and gave um you know the the first part of 2004 um, and battalion two, the second battalion, Skimmy County was, we're going to be on duty. And on duty was really my first thing. And it was made fun of. I mean, there was, you know, during USAR training back 15 years ago, other shifts would like, like take welding machines and weld on duty, being smart asses and all that. But I, I went around and I gave a talk. If you're going to be on, at work, you're going to be on duty. If you're going to be on at work, you're going to believe it's worth the risk. Um, and, you know, I, I hope that answers the question. It's really this kind of that simple that. We have a duty to act, and that action should be based on, you know, depending on your years of service, years of of dedication, and and you know, experience, training, uh, skills, knowledge, and ability. And you know, I, I say it: our our investment, our commitment to this job dictates the difference between life and death for people every single day. Um, when you go in the front door of a house, whether it's two o'clock in the afternoon when the percentage of civilian fire fatalities is low or the highest hour of the day, two o'clock in the morning, we should be looking at that house and using those basic things of do, why do we go left or why do we go right when we search? And when we go the wrong direction, we have to hold ourselves accountable that we failed to properly plan based on time of day, size up, where the garage is and all that stuff. And I just think that we need to raise the bar of it's worth the risk. And I'm going into the second part of it's worth the risk. The second part of of, of holding our fellow peers accountable. First and foremost, it's worth the risk to risk our lives, to save civilian lives. And it's worth the risk to step up and do what our fighter pilots do. When they go out and the Blue Angels, we're home of the Blue Angels in Pensacola. We're very proud of Northwest Florida 850 of our military. When they come back, they go in a room and, and quite frankly, they're, pretty direct, they're pretty blunt with each other about their failures and nobody crashed, just like how they communicated and how they flew during a training exercise. And, you know, our tailboard critiques, I was just, you know, uh, it was probably too I was reading somebody's thing and, you know, the tailboard critique is, is critical. And I'll tell you, I've, I've gotten off of it. And January 1st of this year, just a little over two months ago, One of my top things at work, I do things off-duty and on-duty. One of my top things at work is now, after each fire, at least covering one little thing. Yesterday morning at 1 o'clock in the morning, I was at a working garage fire, attached garage. Um, I I pull up, two cars in a driveway, two little Honda SUVs. Instantly, I see the, the tags. Disabled veteran on both tags. I see an American flag flying with a light on it, and the flag looks brand new in front of a very modest, you know, uh, house one car garage three bedroom you know probably one and a half bath and instantly being a military kid i'm like this guy's retired military and you know he's running around and, and barefooted you know he's probably in his 70s and he's really getting in the way to be honest with you chief and and i'm patient with him and i'm and i'm patient with him and afterwards i looked at a couple of lieutenants and i said i know you're surprised i didn't yell at him and say hey get back or you know go over there i said when i pulled up i got i got there first I saw two military disabled tags. I saw an American flag flying at one o'clock in the morning with a light on it. Wasn't tattered, it wasn't messed up. The red, white and blue was as bright as bright can be, as bright as, you know, brighter than this flag on my chest. And I said, he's not the guy that's been out of the military 20 or 30 years and now fires at his house and he feels engaged. It's not my place to tell him to get across the street. And he actually gave me some good information you know, as a whole. So, you know, at the end that was a tailboard critique to, to whatever the 18 firefighters that were there that, hey, we gotta be observant of whose house we're going to. And there were some things we had a garage door, they had a cut and we have our garage doors have hurricane stuff on them. So you have to be almost perfect to cut a garage door in Florida. And I just did a little quick nugget on on the saws. I mean, I get to hang out with be like Mike Champa. I mean, I might I might not know how to do it, but I know how he told, so I just share his stories, you know? And I tell him, and those are things that, that it's, it's our duty to take the time, it's worth the risk to just to to call out and explain, you know, why we're doing and not worry about feelings as much. And, and I, I hate to ramble there, but I got so much to, you know, to, to share. And those are just things. So it's kind of a two-part question, but I just leave it this it's worth the risk for us to risk our lives to save civilian lives that we voluntarily signed up to do that
0: no and I wouldn't say rambling what you said so many great things there and I want to recap two very important things so here you are you're a new leader or you reach a new leadership position in your organization so the first thing you do is you give a speech to your people what's that it's setting expectations so I've done the same thing I've talked a lot about this, actually. If you don't set expectations, and it's okay to take a day or two. Let me Mm -hmm. see how they work. Maybe I'm new. Maybe I don't work with this. It didn't work with this group a lot. It's okay to take a day or two, see how they work, see what's important. But set expectations of what you expect from them. Because I think there's a big problem uh, in just in society in general that people are being, being, I guess, uh, brought up. I don't want to say brought up on charges. That's kind of strong. But they're being reprimanded for things that they don't even know. That they're supposed to be doing. So set the expectations. Now, if they don't do it, that's a whole different story. This is what you need to be doing. This is what the fire service is all about. And for example, my talk to my crew when I took over was I told them, I don't think I'm any smarter, any better of a firefighter, any more experienced than any of you. Because I mean, listen, I've been on a job for the same amount of time as almost everybody on my shift, with the exception of a few, when I became their deputy. Some of them were on longer than me. They were on with my dad. I said, but I do understand my job. And what I told them, Kurt, was I believe that my job is to do everything in my power to make sure that I make the right decisions to get you home to your families at the end of every shift. And the reason I say that is I know that you put the citizens of this community's needs ahead of your own. So I'm putting your needs ahead of mine. And my job is to help get you ready to do the job that we're all here to do. And to do that, I need something in return. So what I did is I told them, you're my priority, you're my responsibility, but at the same time, this is the standard I need you to reach. And one of the things was we're training for three hours a day. We're there for 24. We're a relatively busy department, but we have downtime. So let's utilize our downtime. And we talked about what we're going to train on. We, we started developing a culture that I was proud of. But it all started with setting expectations. The second thing you talked about was about using incidents as training opportunities. That's huge. It's huge because when you have those calls, and we've had it, we've had it before, we had a a dumpster fire, right? So I have two engines, a ladder company myself, we respond to a dumpster fire. When I show up, it's it's a dumpster right next to a house. They're renovating one of the floors on a house and they're cutting up sheetrock, dropping it out of the second floor window. It's just sheetrock dust, it's not a fire. But I have two engines and a ladder company with me. So I said, pull over to the side, bring everybody over. I got brand new firefighters, one brand new driver, and a brand new officer on my group. Let's talk about a dumpster fire next to a residence. What would we do? Now, it seems like it's a simple thing, but there's things you need to do at every incident. So we used it. I remember one time coming out of a building at three o'clock in the morning, brand new firefighters standing there saying, Chief, can I take this from you? Can I take that? Do you need anything? No, I don't need anything. I said, let me ask you a question. Do you know the difference between brick veneer and brick as the structure of the building, meaning ordinary construction. And and he says, no, actually I don't. I said, well, these two buildings, one's uh, ordinary construction, the other one's brick veneer, let me show you. And how this applies to us if we had a fire in the walls. So use those moments, use those. I love telling the story about the firefighter that I knew that, that carried twine with him, that when the captain was getting information for his report, he would take the twine And every 50 feet there's one knot, two knots, three knots, four knots. And he would tie it to the pump panel and walk it through the structure to find the deepest part of that structure to say, can our hose line, our our pre-connect reach this point of large structures? And I mean, I said, I don't think you need to twine every two steps, you know, it's this many feet. But but at the same time, I love that ambition. So train every day, But, but now you got me rambling about it. But but this is what it is. See, you said something on a recent podcast. You said, uh, hang out with one percenters, go to conferences, listen to podcasts, get inspired and feed that desire. See, when I talk to a guy like you, I get excited because it's contagious. No, it is. And your conferences too. I mean, you do great conferences. You bring in amazing speakers. There's nothing better than sitting down there. Uh, it's, it's pretty intimate. They're not very huge. And I'd like you to actually talk about your conferences and this is a perfect time to do so well um
1: first i just real quick i tag you know like i tell firefighters all the time everything we do in this job is about history everything we do in this job is about history and you said dumpster and i, I can't help but instantly i think about brett tarver you know what i mean a dumpster that communicated to a grocery store you know um and and, and you know phoenix and then you're talking about Brit, you know you know, construction. I'm like instantly thinking about. It. According to Brannigan, I had the fortunate opportunity over 20 years ago at FDIC to sit down right next to to Brannigan and his and his awesome wife and and have dinner. And just those are things that we have to share and critique with people and let them understand the value of. It's not just a dumpster because everything you know starts little. You know. Uh, The the June of 2007 in Charleston, that was, you know, some boxes from where they broke down some lazy boys back in the alleyway that communicated just like it did in Phoenix, into the building, into the overhead uh, type of thing. So those little stories that we're teaching, you know, with those those smaller incidents are critical. But the, the CFT conferences, the county fire tactics conferences, the team of people that put them on is huge. You know, some people call their people instructors or they call them cadre or whatever. We just call it the team. I mean, you're on the team. Um, you know, we don't have a defined team. We just, if, if we choose or we want somebody to be, and, and I'm pretty blunt, it's, I've been accused of it being rude or arrogant. You don't ask to teach a CFT. We don't have open applications. Um, actually asking a teacher will probably get you banned from teaching because we think it's more powerful to be invited than inviting yourself um, but the team is huge. I, I videoed around two weeks ago at our, we had a little instructor dinner after the hands on, and it was literally 100 people in the room to make the conference happen. It's, 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 there's so many things. And anybody that's ever done a conference can appreciate that, you know, there might be a face, you know, maybe whether it's me or Jessica, you know, or Shannon Stone or Matt Scowell, the, the, the ones that have been with us, you know, from the, the beginning. Ray and I started the first CFT conference 11 years ago, and they've grown and developed. But, we really didn't have them, there really wasn't a defined, um, you know, vision of where the co- CFT conferences will grow. And I think that's what's made them somewhat successful or as powerful as we weren't trying to be anybody else. And I get this all the time that we do a conference and hey, you should do this because they do that. Well, they do that, that makes it special there. That's not our thing that we're doing. We're not trying to be like every other fire conference on how, you know, what we do obviously we could go to a bigger convention center. I've had people to try to get me to go to Okaloosa Island, but then it wouldn't be what you said a minute ago. I mean, I think, I think you know, we've packed as many as nearly 700 people in there, but some of our most powerful conferences would be like the ODP that you were just at um, in January, where we had, you know, I don't remember what it was, COVID, I think we were right at 200 or something, but normally we cap it at 250. I mean, who needs more than 250 people on an island for a week? It can only talk to so many people. Uh, but they have grown. And I, you know, a lot of people say, hey, why don't you just do one conference a year? Because I can only reach one area of people. And so, us doing the five conferences is not to compete with anybody else. If, if you've ever watched our little four minute intro, all five of our conferences have a different discipline and they're focused on a different part of the fire service that is unique. And we're not trying to replicate or do what somebody else can do better than us. Orlando Fire Conference, it'll be 20 years next year. And Orlando Fire Conference, hands down, has been doing more and better hands-on than we'll ever do consistently year after year at Central Florida Fire Academy, their heavy rescue. They do two days a hot. Um, and so for us, we're just kind of trying to stay, not in our lane, but the lane that we think will make them work from the officer development program. Um, it's, you know five days a week that we think is you know, not a stay out late and get drunk. You got to be in class the whole day, you know, to the end of the year, we have a and a little bit of everything, you know, in between they there it's for different people. It's, we're not, we're not expecting the same person to come to all five conferences, I guess. So that's it. Um, I'll, 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 I'll finish with this. The CFT conferences, the, and this is a leadership lesson. Um, and I, I shared this a few times. Um, And you and I've shared some of our struggles within our organizations that we work in. And I'll I'll try to stay away from that. But there was a defining moment in my career in February 23rd of 2009. I was on the six o'clock news as the acting deputy chief of operations. And my boss was fired who had asked me to be the interim deputy chief. Um, Another individual was fired. It said on the news that I was fired. My wife sees on the news that I'm fired. Um, but I was still on paper civil service uh, battalion chief. And, you know, these are, my, these are my thoughts. I felt like I'd been disempowered in, you know, February of 2009. And up till that, for the last nine years, from 2000 to 2009, I was um, empowered to basically operationally give the direction for a large county fire department. What kind of rope bags we're going to use? Do we put knots in the rope, not knots in a rope? You know, seven-eighths nozzle was determined, smooth bore for us literally in the fall of 1999. And so when you're in power for nine years to say, hey, we're going from hooligans to 30-inch pro bars, and we're going from fiberglass pipe poles to six-foot roof hooks. And and literally, I had an open-end checkbook, and I could do all this. And on February 23rd, 2009, it came to a stop. I, I, a gentleman that retired from, um, I want to say, Alexandria, Virginia, was uh, second in command of our Pensacola Christian College. He took me for a long ride a great phenomenal leader in the fire service did 30 some years. And he said, um, Kurt, what you need to do from this day forward is come to work, do your job on your shift, go home and find something else to do. He said, what you've done the last nine years, they're not looking for you to do that anymore. And so I went home and, um, I went into somewhat of a state of depression because I'd walked away from nine years with the Pensacola fire department, local 707, and I'm no longer, You know, there's gonna be a new chief coming in. Um, The chances of me being empowered to operationally run our beyond minimum standards, give operational direction. Things were going to change drastically for me. And I I can't go back and do it over. I didn't handle it very well. But what I did do is I was sitting on the front porch um, of of our house, the fifth house I've lived in. It's the only one that's not side by side. It's just down the street. First house Jessica and I built, um, designed from the ground up. I was sitting on the front porch and this is, this is probably right at the end of 2009 and I'm on the front porch and I think County fire tactics, County fire tactics. And I thought about working for the Pensacola fire department. I thought about what we'd been doing the last nine years. I run in the house. The kids are asleep. You know, our three kids were, we're little and I come in the house and I'm screaming and hollering to Jessica County fire tactics. I got to start doing conferences and seminars and empower myself to do what I'm no longer gonna be able to do at Escambia County, because we'd already been doing conferences through Escambia County. I had you know, some phenomenal people like Mike Lombardo come down in 2004 after Hurricane Ivan and train on a vacant Best Western. Now God works in mysterious ways and, and I don't wanna get into religion, but it's American, I, I grew up in a church, so I still think it's legal to say I'm a Christian. And things don't just happen by chance, but it's ironic that two weeks ago, we're training on a Best Western on Pensacola Beach, that's three stories that are hurricane-damaged. 17 years before, another hurricane on Perdido Key, which is our other barrier island in Escambia County, was damaged by a hurricane. And we trained on it, but it was funded through Escambia County Fire Rescue. The one two weeks ago was funded by county fire tactics. So Jessica says, well, you got to get online. You got to get on, you know, whatever. I'll, I'll give a, a shout out to GoDaddy or Big Daddy or whatever. That right, is. Yeah. You got to get the website. You got don't tell anybody. And, and I'll tell you, the first person I told was Ray McCormick. And and I think Ray Ray might even say, well, did you get the website? And I said, well, no, but I got to get on. And I, I secured CountyFireTactics.com. And, you know, I say County Fire Tactics really evolved in 1999 to 2000 when I left the City Fire Department. It was ISO-1 with a on every corner. But CountyFireTactics.com was purchased in 2009 after one of the biggest disappointments in my career happened to me. And, you know, whatever you want to call it, and lemons to lemonade, I don't care, whatever you can call it, whatever you want. It was a defining moment that I was no longer going to be empowered to do it here. And we got countyfiretactics.com. Um, I sat on it for a little while. DJ Stone, Shannon's brother, got it up and running. And up until recently, I call it my third grade website because I just ran it off my phone and never used Word or did any comma checks or spell checks. But it did, it got done what we needed to get it done. And now a guy named Scott Slocum is working on it. But 11 years ago, Ray and I um, did urban to suburban um, fire tactics on Pensacola Beach and the Holiday Inn next to where you've taught numerous times, the Hilton's next door. And, you know, Ray and I did it and, and we lost money literally. Lost money. I mean, we charged fifty bucks a person. I think I had no clue how much it cost to pay for coffee at a convention center. I didn't know what it cost. I paid more money for the projector and the screen than it was to buy a projector. No, I'm not kidding you. For a one day seminar, I paid over a thousand dollars for AV for a projector and a pop up screen. So, needless to say, I went and bought my own projectors and my own screens. Um, And I hope this is answering a question. But the, the story is actually very unique and very long. How County fire tactics evolve CFT, you know, if, 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 you know, chief Perkins had not been a fire and I would not been put back to battalion chief, I really don't think CFT conferences would exist. I don't think County tactics.com would exist. I think I would probably still be working Monday through Friday, eight to five. I would have missed out on the last 12 years, I guess as of just a week or so ago, I would have missed out on 12 years of, of going to a lot of fires, which is, know that that's where i'm meant to be really is command and fires i'm you know i'm everybody's cut out to do something different i'm not cut out to be a fire chief um type of thing i'm I'm, you know you know so i'm I'm a i'm an operational you know training guy so a lot of times you know we don't you know you know we don't get to dictate when and how it happens i saw a great post about you know sometimes when you pray they're not answered on your terms, they're answered on God's terms. And and when I look back in my life, that is so true. You know, there's so many things I prayed about, and they didn't happen when I wanted them to happen. They happened when the timing was right. And Garth,
0: Garth Brooks said it best. Thank God for unanswered prayers sometimes. Oh no, right. Phenomenal song. I'm a, I'm a country.
1: <laughs> I, you know, Garth, Garth Garth Brooks might not be as, as good as George Strait, but I still listen to him a little bit. I um George Strait. Um, but you know, the reality is, you know, I'll, I'll leave it at that. That you know, you know, only a few people know, but the story of countyfiretactics.com, CFT conferences was not something I sat down and I was trying to, 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 to do what it turned into. It became what it became because of the team, um, the people that were willing to come. Um, 2013 was our big year after we'd already done a bunch of one day seminars. I did water on the fire in 2011 um, and in 2013, uh, Ray McCormick and I were flying to San Diego together. Um, Ray and I would try to meet in Atlanta. He would fly um, out of Orange County or Newburgh or wherever up there by his house. And we would try to meet either in Detroit or Atlanta. And then we would fly across the country. It's always better to fly sitting next to somebody you want to converse with and, and, mm-hmm. and have something in common with. And it's not. It's, it's a true joke. I've told this story on the stage on Pensacola Beach a month. H-Rock was, was Ray and I sitting on a Delta Airlines flight at 33,000 feet. And, um, you know, people say, how do you flow water off the 17th floor of the Hilton? You just ask. I mean, it really, it's that simple. I mean, I've had a lot of people say, how do you do? And I said, you know, rain up came on an idea. I got home. I went out to the Hilton. Um, I, I, I said, I want to rent the space. They said, you don't even know what it costs. I said, I know. I'll figure out how to pay for it. We didn't, I didn't even ask the cost of renting the rooms. I, you know, I wish I looked back. I was not a very good businessman. Um, but, you know, we did H-Rock and, you know, when when we were doing it, and this is some advice anybody that's listening don't rush your career you know yes you know jess I own county fire tactics but I, I i even to this day struggle um and and chief you've been there i struggled to this day taking up stage time in front of the senior people in the fire service to me that that you know based on the way society works most likely i should probably be here longer than them because i'm younger than them um, so when we did it, my thing was all about putting vetted people on the stage. And so when we were coming up with HROC, it's like, who do we call? Well, shoot, we got to call Chief Dave McGrail. He's got the high-rise book, right? Um, you know, we got to call, you know, Captain Bill Gustin. I mean, he's one of my top mentors. And we, you know, we got to, you know, call this person and that person, Chief Hoff and Colum And we were reaching out to people from coast to coast. We didn't just want to know how they did it in Miami. We're going to do a high-rise conference and it's not going to be regional. It's going to be you know, not just national, it's gonna be international, then we need a true perspective of suburban to urban, east coast to west coast. And a real quick story, I gotta tell you, May, May of 2013, and to the listeners, go look at what happened in Houston, Texas in May of 2013. Very, very bad fire in a motel that, that killed multiple Houston firefighters. And we were coming up with a list and I'd been following Kevin's story Uh, a fine gentleman retired from the eights downtown in Houston that was big into PRV valves and doing stuff. And, and, and i tell you, chief, I I look back and and it it really is just each time I tell this story, it's a little freaky. I almost didn't call Kevin the night I was going to call him because I was just busy. And I I told Jessica, I said, I got to call him. I said, we're just getting too close. I mean, H our first H rock is, is only seven months from now. It's probably six months, you know, in a couple of weeks and I called Kevin Story and I said, hey man, um, Ray McCormick and I are gonna do this high rise conference and we're gonna flow water off the 17th floor. We're gonna do stuff that nobody's ever done in a fire service. We're gonna have firefighters fully geared riding elevators. We're gonna, do, we're gonna treat an occupied 285 room hotel like it's on fire. And he said, I'm in, I'm in. And we asked Kevin Story to be a part of the 1st HROC. H-Rock. And the next day he was on duty and he went to, to that fire that, you know, claimed numerous lives, building collapse. He was involved in the May Days. Um, And, you know, that's a defining moment of my career for the listeners that, you know, if you're watching this and it's 8 o'clock at night and you're thinking about calling a fellow brother or sister firefighter you hadn't talked to in a while, you know, pause, flashpoint, pause it right now, pause it and call him because you might not get to talk to him tomorrow. And I'm I'm not trying to be Debbie Downer on this, you know, this awesome flashpoint podcast. But those are things in my life that are defining moments. That you know, you just don't know what tomorrow brings. And, and I'll tell you this: if I'd have waited a day to call him after that fire, it could have appeared that I was asking him because he went to a fire where firefighters die. We all know how the psychological mind works. Yeah. Um, so I I called him just right. And you know, before that incident, after that incident, anytime I hear of a fireground mayday or fireground live duty death you know, my, my skin on my back just trolls because there's very few cities that I don't know somebody. We talked about hanging out with one percenters when, when, you know, I hate the word being on the circuit, but when you're on the circuit like we are, we become friends, we become close and personal. We meet each other's wives and kids, you know, across the country. And when something like that happens, you know, it's a possibility. It's not, it's not a firefighter. It could be a firefighter that you broke bread with, you know, and those are those things. So I rambled there about answering a question
0: about how CFP conferences yeah, but, is- but again, you say so much. I mean, uh, number one is how, how you're, and by the way, I have my cup right here, county fire tactics, <laughs> but how your business was born out of adversity. And so many awesome things are. So many people think when they're going through their own personal fires in life that they've taken a bad turn. Most of the best things in my life came after those moments. So I love that you shared that. And also about picking up that phone and calling. You know, it's interesting, and, and I hope you're okay with me telling this story. I didn't I didn't expect to to tell this, but when you're talking about making that call, um, you and I had never met before, but um, on social media after your your dad had passed away, uh, you post a lot of stuff about him, and I kind of saw myself with my relationship with my father in your relationship with your father. So many similarities, and. Um, I just said, you know what, I don't know this guy, Kurt. I know he's passionate, uh, but we never actually met at all. But I went on Facebook, where I was on Facebook, looking at what you posted. And I just hit inbox to send you a message just to say, hey, and I did left you a message saying, I'm real sorry to hear about your dad. And, but when I hit that, that, uh, that inbox to send a message, I realized that you had sent me a message, and it was months before. And the message you sent me was, hey, would you be interested in coming down and teaching at our conference? And so I thought, and I remember I sent you a second message right after saying, I just realized you sent me that message. I'm sorry. I didn't, I never got that. And that wasn't the time and place to talk about it, but you recontacted me and said, I really would love to have you come down. And thank you for that because uh, it, I love coming down to that conference. I think it was the third time I came down or the second time I brought my wife, the third time I was bringing my whole family and then COVID hit. So maybe we'll get to do that. No, we of- will. Yeah, it was a it was a a really great time for my wife and I because we went down there during Mother's Day, and we went uh, we had uh, dinner at a nice restaurant. We spent some time with you and a the team. Uh, there were a lot of firefighters' wives down there, which I think is really unique to that particular conference than any other one that I've been on. So she had the opportunity to kind of connect with and speak with other spouses uh, of firefighters, and that's important because we're a tribe in the fire service, and we're certainly a tribe like you said, on the circuit, for lack of a better word. Um, But spouses are a tribe too, and they need support. They need to understand. Uh, I was speaking with Mike Turpek on his podcast just about this exact thing where I never came home from work and talked to my wife about what happened at work. First of all, because talking to her puts me in a different emotional state than talking to another firefighter. I talked to another firefighter. It's like, Oh dude, man, that call, that was crazy. What happened on there. And you talk like you're talking to a firefighter, you talk to your wife all of a sudden, maybe it brings out that side of you that I really don't want this side of me to come out. I'm supposed to be stronger than this, right? We think we're supposed to be so strong. So, um, so, and I've heard you talk in the past about your relationship with Jessica, who I've met. I love Jessica. Your whole family's fantastic, but how you guys have, have weathered some tough times you're very transparent you're transparent about how you met her you're transparent about uh going through challenges that we all go through in relationships because life presents stress you know life is stressful whether you whether you want to admit it or not we're all either in a crisis just got out of a crisis or we're heading towards a crisis and for the record that's why i believe in training just like you believe in training because we may not have a fire today we may not have to make a rescue today but this is the day we need to train and prepare for it because when it happens it's too late to go back and say wait a minute hold on we didn't prepare for this oh let's prepare for let's let's huddle up and then we'll figure it out and then we'll no you're there the game's on it's too late and i talked a little bit about relationships and family and a little bit about the fire service but you know me enough to know that i connect them both mm-hmm because the fire service is a family too. So uh, any thoughts on any of that rambling that I just did now?
1: No, no, um, 100%, you know, and, and Jessica and I are pretty transparent. And 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 sometimes I'm taken wrong or people are offended, but sometimes, you know, if I'm introducing Jess or whatever, I'll refer to her as my first wife. And when I say that, I say that because she easily could have not, you know, she I, I could have, you know, we could have been divorced and and that, I mean, people that are close to us know that we've gone to counseling a bunch, you know, we've had, you know, had our struggles, you know, financially had our struggles personally, um, you know, three kids at the house. And there were, were times where the fire department, I put the fire department before her, before the kids, um, you know, just traveling from conference to conference before it was a job when it was literally me just going and I had no balance and I was spending our family money, for that stuff, you know, to, to go to these conferences. And that's why sometimes I'm pretty direct with the younger firefighters. When I say, man, like, you know, I just saw you at the fourth conference I'm getting paid to be here. You're here. You know, whether it's on your department's dime, you're here on your own time, even if it's on your department's dime, it's your time. And I try, and when I tell that I don't mean to be offensive, but I'm trying to hopefully guide them that, you know, it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. And as much as you love this job, And now what's pretty awesome is I love that there's so many fire conferences is because people can choose conferences that work around their kids' baseball schedule, soccer schedule, or whatever. And, And I do want to throw this in. The reason our fire conferences, other than ODP, which has to be five days, the reason they're Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, is you travel on Monday, you travel on Friday, and you never miss a weekend. They're during the school year. We don't do them in the summer months. We do them where hopefully if you have kids, they're in school, they come home, they got sports, they go, they do their homework, they go to bed. I do not like to take, you know, I do not like to, to get into the weekends, you know, and those are things that the reason that Jessica and I prefer the, the Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And, you know, for me, a big thing about my traveling, and, it, and this dates back, I mean, really the, the over 20 years that we've been together, is that when I travel somewhere and I'm staying in a hotel room? Jessica personally knows the person that's sleeping in the bed next to me. I mean, she's probably, probably almost guaranteed met their significant other. You know, um, and that's something that dates back, you know, a, a long time. I mean, I mean, we've been having out of town firefighters come to our house for dinner. It's complicated now because we do the conference at the beach. We all stay at the hotel. But before they got as big as they were when I was doing stuff in Escambia. You know, I would we Jessica and I would have just like I saw as a kid. My father had people over the house. We would have them over. I'm I'll never forget one of my proudest moments was probably I don't know s- 17 years ago to have Bill Gustin come to my house to eat, and it was not as good as yours, but homemade manicotti. Jessica, one of the first dishes she ever cooked me was homemade manicotti, where I watched her, you know, stuff everything in there, and you know, to have somebody like Bill Gustin you know, 17 years ago. I mean, I'm still infatuated by him. I mean, I have like a bromance for Captain Gustin. (laughs) And to have somebody like that in a fire service come to my house, sit at my dinner table and my kids, I mean, they know who Mr. Bill is. I mean, like, you know, you say Mr. Bill, they know who he is. And I share that because, you know, Jessica's been involved from day one since before we got married back in to the 90s. She was coming to the firehouse when, you know, I don't have time here to share the story. We share it at COBC, but when the first time we met, we met on Pensacola Beach, right near the Hilton, and I showed up with a stack of Chief Vincent Dunn's books, and she's like, "What is
0: this?" Well, I'm studying for lieutenant. Well, was she? She was a bartender or waitressing. Bartender at Outback. I got to tell you why I bring this up because you told this story one time. You you talked about how you and Jessica met and how you asked her out about 35 times before she finally agreed to go out with you. And, and then you introduced me to come speak, and then you walked out of the room. And when you walked out of the room, I said to everybody, I said, you know what? It's very interesting. We have a lot in common. I met my wife. She was bartending, too, which is a true story. I said, but I only had to ask her out once. I don't know what his problem is. And everybody <laughs> laughed. Oh. Well, we just had some fun with that. But, yeah. Um, but that's good stuff. I want to share this with you also. That particular conference, I'm flying down to uh, to come teach and Adam Biddle from Noblesville, uh, Indiana, is on a flight attending your conference. I don't know him. I don't know he's going to the conference. All I know is he's sitting right next to me, and I look over, and he's reading my book. And I thought, now, that's either the strangest coincidence in history or he's going to the same place I'm going and then I thought for a second, should I tell him that? Hey, that's my book. Or should then I'm like, no, that would be so stupid. I'm not saying anything. So I said nothing. Then when we're get, we're waiting to get our bags around a turntable, he comes up and says, "Excuse me, but are you Chief Escuso? And I almost wanted to say, "No, I'm not," just as a joke, because <laughs> I know he figured it out. And I said, "I am." And and uh, he saw my book. Years, a couple years later, he invites me out to Noblesville to come spend a few days teach. What a great department, by the way. Great. Oh no, department.
1: They're, they're CFT one hundred members. So. Noblesville, they I mean, they send, whether it's Adam, they send people, and I'm pretty sure they normally drive. So you said he flew. They drive down sometimes, but they have CFT 100. So they send members to all five of our conferences and then even some of our little ones that are not a part of the CFT 100. So they're definitely, as an organization, or leadership is invested in bettering themselves.
0: Well, I'll tell you, that's beautiful. And it shows because you could see that they are focused on wanting to get better. And I love, I really do love the members that I met in that department. That's the first time, Kurt, I think in, I wanna say 10 years, and this is going back to what you just shared about with Jessica, how she knows who's sleeping in that bed next to you at the hotels when you're speaking. But the first time I think in 10 years that I that I know of that anyone actually invited me over to their house to meet their family for dinner. And I actually went to, uh, to the Biddle's house, we had dinner. Uh, it was great, I met his whole family, they're fantastic people. But I've said this before, to your point, when I travel, I'm always having dinner with the chiefs or the, or the training guys that have, or girls that have brought me in. The whole organization, you know, like five, six people are coming out. We would like to take you out for dinner on Wednesday night. Of course, that's, that's the best time for me. This is the meeting after the meeting or the meeting before the meeting. I get to learn about you, you get to learn about me. I'll do less talking then than I'm gonna do speaking because I'm gonna do all my speaking at the conference. But never, never, do I go out to a bar when they invite me just to go out to a bar to get some drinks? Because my wife has not met these people. She wouldn't understand it. Uh, I don't, you know, to me, bad things are going to happen at three o'clock in the morning out in Wisconsin if I'm out drinking with a bunch of guys I just met. You know Mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Like, to put this in perspective, this is, and I shouldn't say that I frown upon anybody going to a bar with people. That's not the point. The point is, I'm out there to to share some tips that I think can help make the fire service and people's working environments better. But I also do this for a living. So I'm providing for my family at the same time. And I don't want to disrespect my family by saying, yeah, tag me out drinking at a bar in another state when my wife's home sleeping. and she just put the kids to bed. No. So, so like I find that balance. Then, then I come to a conference like yours where she gets to come out to dinner with everybody. And, it, and it's awesome. So I just wanted to kind of share that with some people just to, to put in perspective. The only, there's only one, I guess, uh, exception to this rule is on on Wednesday nights at FDIC, we have the instructor's dinner. And after the instructor's dinner, a group of us, Mike Galliano, Anthony Avila, you name it, I could go down the list, a group of us. Uh, would hit a bar at FDIC. I can't even remember the name of it, but they play uh, blues music. Uh, gosh, I can't even believe I can't remember the name of it. But we hit this, uh, this one place and we just enjoy the music and camaraderie. And I'm usually the first to leave there as well. But I wanted to, to touch on that because we're talking about family. I think it's important. Paul Combs has that great illustration about uh, the the one guy that just attended the conference and his wife saying, yeah, FDIC looks like it was fun, but what's with all the glitter? Right? I don't
1: know. No, no, I see Uh, Paul Combs' stuff is unbelievable. And, you know, a few years ago, I did a presentation and they were strictly, it was just a last minute thing. I was asked to do something. And I took a bunch of Paul's artwork, you know, his images and just put them on the screen. And then, you know, he always has the story and just, you know, share it because, it in itself, every one of them has a message, and I, yes. you know, they they speak to me. So and I, you know, I think I've told Paul this before. Some of the ones that he's done, you know, it's it's like sitting in church and you're in the back of a room and you feel like the priest or the preacher is talking to you. It's a guilt trip, and you know, Paul's done some things. I'm like, man, is he talking to me? And he is. He's talking to me. He might not be purposely doing it, and it's just a gut check. And you know, the, 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 the teachings of his work, it, it really, there's not a way to even explain it. The the power of it is is just unbelievable. And I have his books. I mean, um, you know, and those are things that each one of them, you know, anybody that's listening now, when you look at it, you know, when, he, when you read it and you think he's talking to you, he doesn't know you, but he's talking to you and yes. just take it for the message for what it is. And if it's a good feeling, great. If it's a bad feeling, then try to make it not repeat itself. That's just kind of how simple it is
0: you hit it on you hit the nail on the head with that one one day uh I, I was so used to seeing people take a paul combs illustration stick it on a locker as a message for somebody else mm. and i thought well hold on now if you have something you need to say to somebody say it to them don't put these little things up there uh although i i understand what their objective is but don't do it that way ha, you It'd know passive aggressive <laughs> right right let's let's be more courageous with our communication here. But one day I took both his books, drawn by fire one and two, and I put them on a table uh, with all my firefighters. I said, hey, listen, I have a, a very fun and easy assignment for us today. You guys have been training real hard. Today's gonna be all tabletop. Here's what I want you to do. I want every one of you to read both these books. And I said, but here's what I want you to do. Try to figure out which ones are talking to you personally. And some of it may not feel good. But that's why I want us to read this, because we need to be honest with what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong. And this book can help bring attention to some of that. And on the uh, topic of Paul Combs, I don't know if you know this, but him and I uh, were were, uh, writing a children's book together. And it's a children's book for, about the fire service for firefighters, about a character that... uh, has a dream and I don't want to give anything away so I'm not going to, but a character that has a dream of something that they want to accomplish and the mutts are trying to keep them down and tell them you're not good enough, you're not strong enough, you're not fast enough, you're not smart enough and this character uh, decides to believe in themselves more than other people's opinions. I can't wait for this book to be released. He's already sent me the first few panels and, uh, and it looks amazing, typical to his work. I think it'll be one of the most beautifully illustrated children's books you've ever seen. And, uh, and I'm excited to, to share that, but I'm glad we, we were able to bring that up. No,
1: no, it's awesome. And in case Paul watches this, the only one, though, I'm not going to agree with is the 7 8s. It's still, he did one on the 7 8s because I always am very passionate about the 7 8s over the 15 16s. And I'll never forget when I saw it and the one with the nozzle, I just started laughing and chuckling. I didn't take it personal. And I just said, that motivates me to continue to be passionate about the movement
0: towards the 7 8s. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Did you ever reach out to him? You never said anything to him? No, no. Right, um, you know what? I'm gonna make sure he sees this then. No, no, no. But-
1: it's it, it's awesome. And his stuff, I, I don't I don't miss a beat to to look at him, read him, and what you had your firefighters do. I take each one of them and I self-evaluate. Um, and just like I always try to read his stuff, where he has the 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 goop balls out there that I don't know why they would waste. If they don't like it, just carry on. Like some of his hate email, um, truly is. Um, inspiring to remind you just like the character that's going to be in the book that you know what yes we want to listen to our critics yes we want to take it in but we can't allow it to be like the the people that'll go to a city council meeting and and they're not even one percent and then they'll change a decision that impacts a city of 60,000 so you know we take that information we weigh it we vet it but we still need to move on our path of what our passion and purpose is
0: yeah, and I'll tell you, you're, you're so on the mark with that, too. He posts, for those of you that don't know, on social media, he'll post his hate mail. And, and it's usually has, it's not as much related to the fire service. Sometimes it is as to uh, when he was doing illustrations for newspapers. But he'll post that hate mail and his response to it. His responses are awesome. Because his responses, he's never. It's never like a dig back. It's there. It, it's almost self-deprecating to a way where I'm like, man, this guy, this guy knows how to take a punch. Because <laughs> me, you punch me, I want to fight. I remember sometimes one guy wrote this about uh, my book on on us. On I don't even remember what site it was, but he wrote. Um, and I and by the way, I had twenty five reviews. Twenty four of them were awesome, and I, I didn't even. I, I didn't expect the people who write some of the things that they're writing. Because here I am writing a, a fire service leadership book and people are talking about how it's changing their life. And I'm thinking, wow. And then I get that one review. And the guy writes, this book is not very well written. I wouldn't read it unless it's on your promotional list. All this guy's doing is regurgitating stuff you read elsewhere. If you want a real leadership book, read something by John Maxwell or Stephen Covey. And Kurt, I'm like, oh, it's like a dagger in my heart, right? And my wife walks in. When I'm looking at it, which I probably was looking at it for about two hours, but she walks in and I'm looking at it. She goes, What's wrong? I said, Read this. She reads it. She goes, That's awesome. I go, Awesome. What's awesome about that? She goes, That's the first time anyone ever put you in a sentence with John Maxwell and Stephen Covey. I said, That's why I married her. (laughs) That's why I married her. But then I'll tell you though, then I saw there's a reply button. And I thought, oh, you know what? I feel like writing, how many books did you write, buddy? You know, let me, let me jab them back a little bit. But of course, I didn't do that. Instead, I reply to him a way that I talk about dealing with critics and unhappy customers in that book. I wrote, I'm very sorry my book didn't meet your expectations, but thank you for your feedback. Unhappy customers are our greatest source for learning. He replies back and goes, wow, I didn't expect you to read that or respond the way you did. Thank you. We need more leaders like you. <laughs> wanted to say, read the book again. No, exactly. So, I mean, but yeah, it's just about understanding this on critics, and, and we could probably end on, on this thought process: processes. Uh, if you're going to step out of your comfort zone, which Kurt and I both inspire and encourage everybody to do, if you're comfortable in your role as a leader, you'll never reach your potential as a leader. It's that simple. But when you do, you will encounter critics. Kurt just talked about the critics that he's encountered in his life and how it's propelled you to, to do something amazing with your conference and to achieve higher levels of, su- of success. I've had my critics as well, and I'll tell you what, I use it, like you said, I listen to them. I just don't let them distract me. Sometimes they actually help me adjust my sales a little bit, and I said, you know what, they're right. I need to pull this in. I need to change my course, So, but I don't take it personal, and That's been a life altering thing for me and believing in myself more than I believe in other people's opinions. Your thoughts on that? No, 100%.
1: You know, at the end of the day, you've got to decide where, what's your destination, you know? And, you know, I think a lot of times people fail to do that. It's easy to, to, to say that, but you know, Jessica and I each year um, for new years or the first of the year, we, we pull out a folder. We've been doing it for over 10 years of, previous years, goals and objectives, personal, finance, professional. And that really is a roadmap of what's your destination. And I can say, I do it more now than ever before. I, you know, I I talked about the conferences and I didn't necessarily, I didn't, you know, we're, we're, you know, I'd love to just tell you that, you know, 11 years ago, I wanted to be doing what we're doing, but that wasn't my goal. My goal was, is to have something to occupy my mind training. I love to do it. And I would say more recently, I know more about where I want to go than I ever have just because I've stopped and I've looked on that vision and um, my emotional intelligence still has a long ways to go. I wish I was good as Paul Combs. Um, I'm definitely trying to, to you know, graduate to a new level of emotional intelligence. But, you know, for the listeners out there that, you know, if you're listening to the Flashpoint, you're obviously passionate about the fire service. You're passionate about getting better is that, Remember, you know, it's what we, we've been sharing frequently our conferences from Rob Fisher, who's um, with the Fools and Brothers in Battle, is 10 pounds of pressure 100% of the time. Don't lose sight. Don't lose, lose focus. Um, I, I've heard you share your story about the first time you taught and how you felt about it. And, and you know, you're one of the top professional speakers in the fire service. You know now with the teaching, but you didn't get to your level now of teaching. It's it's you know years of and I think I was on the front row of the first time he taught at FDIC. Um, you know I you know um, I remember the the first time you know, I was on the front row of a lot of people and I look at them and I was inspired and thought how awesome they were and then I see them a year later, ten years later, and I'm like, I thought they were great the first time. How are they getting better? And we're all gonna get better as long as we have a vision of that's what we wanna do. And we're, we're, we're looking to make the most, you know, of each day with our purpose and our passion. That's just, you know, that's what the fire service is about. Um, you, know, you know, retirement's not a destination, it's a journey. Enjoy the ride, enjoy the journey, don't rush it. Um, you know, this morning, uh, Mike Galliano was talking about his last day in a Seattle fire department. And I can tell you um, without using names, personally have some very very close friends um, that are known by a lot of viewers that have retired in recent years and will be retiring in this year and in in the next couple of years and they're people that i've been following my entire career and if they could do it all over they would start tomorrow they would go back they would do it all over and they live the life of retirement is not a destination it's a journey and enjoying the ride to get there, and don't rush it. You know, I see so many phenomenal firefighters at seminars and conferences, just as you do, and they they if they could just realize to stop and enjoy the moment. Don't whether it's rushing to be a boss or rushing to have your own fire conference or rushing to whatever. You know, I have people tell me all the time that I should write a book, and I can promise you, the book County Fire Tactics will you know if I get to live long enough will happen. But right now. That's not, you know, I'm not rushing that. I have plenty of time. I have, I have, I still have two kids at home. I got one in college. We're running conferences. And there's a lot of great books out there that I don't need to put mine on the shelf to have somebody to, to do it, you know? And so, you know, if you're out there, you know, chart out your plan of what your career is going to be, whether it's some of the stuff we talked about, um, about including your spouse, including your family, which I think is a great movement in the fire service. I know not everybody agrees with it, but I think the strongest fire service is going to be a family-oriented fire service of where we need to go and and just make it a journey, not a destination. I could ramble on it, but I think that's what's most important is, is enjoy the ride and and don't be looking for the, the end to, to, to get there so quickly.
0: You know what? I think you just gave us the title for this podcast, which may be enjoy the ride. Mm-hmm. So, no, it, c- it is. It's, it is a ride and it's a great ride. Well, thank you so much for for coming on and sharing so many of your thoughts about so many different things on this podcast. I think it's fantastic. How can people get a hold of Chief Isaacson?
1: Um, It's easy. Just go to countyfiretattics.com and um, my personal cell phone number's on there. My email's on there. Um, and I'm, you know, on Facebook at CF Tactics. Um, Kurt Isaacson, I, I, I don't don't take it personal. It's maxed out at whatever the rule is that Facebook has. I think it's 5,000. Um, but... You know you can you can find me pretty uh easily i try to to, to make time to talk to respond to texts i wouldn't be giving out my personal you know phone number uh if you have if you you know if it works out in your calendar and you make it to a cft conference we're positive you'll enjoy the atmosphere on pensacola beach from the free shuttles to and from and just you know this the people on pensacola beach the whether it's the waiters the waitresses the staff you've been there Um, We just think it's a a unique experience. And we hope that if you come, that we send you home re-energized, motivated, and ready to make a difference in your hometown.
0: Amen to that. Thank you so much for your time. I hope everybody enjoyed this podcast. I know I certainly did. And I'll be talking to you soon, Kurt, for sure. Awesome. Thanks, Chief. You're welcome.